Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com slash 2022 and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for the filter on your favorite podcast app. I should note that my TV show is now available to watch on many PBS affiliates, and you can also stream it. Go to pbs.org or the PBS app on your smart TV and begin to search for Matt Asher, all one word, and you should see it pop up. My guest today is David Gornoski. David is the host of A Neighbor's Choice radio show, which examines the role of violence and religion in society. David is also a Florida man, though like some others, he has inexplicably made the decision to live not in glorious South Florida or the Keys. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, you know, I live in the original South Florida before air conditioning was invented, so and the railroad used to go down to Polk County where I'm at. That was considered South Florida. That's why you have Tampa as the University of South Florida. You know, that's where the university is. So uh, we are the original OG South Floridians here, my friend. <laughs> you have to thank Mr. Carrier for your air conditioning that allowed you guys to get a little closer down south. <laughs> it is true that that uh, air conditioning made the, the the South and, of course, the railroad uh, and the Conk Republic, which is a, another term for uh, the Keys here, where I live inhabitable on a year-round basis. Uh, but uh, now that we have it, I think it's it's the place to be. But at, at any rate, I'm glad to have you on the show and very much enjoy your your radio show slash podcast, a a major theme of my show, and I think that related very much to the topic we're going to discuss today is, as mentioned in the show, Unknown Knowns, the Invisible Ephemeral Quadrant of Human Understanding. I think there are few better examples of ideas that fit into that category than the ones we're going to discuss today. They're ideas that are both intuitive and obvious to us as human beings, but largely invisible. But before I get to that, let me give an example of unknown knowns for new listeners. This is one that occurred to me just this morning as I was walking around Key West. If you live down here long enough, you inevitably end up buying one of those kind of bougie flip-flops. And yes, those do exist. And you're as you're walking around in them, you if you're paying attention, you'll note that Walking in flip-flops is kind of a minor skill. It requires that you change how your foot lands slightly and you curl your toes a bit with each step so they don't get kicked forward off your feet. I know how to do this, but until this morning, I hadn't really thought about it. My ability to walk in flip-flops was an unknown known, a skill that existed outside of my awareness. Now it's a, a known known. Many unknown knowns are like this, kind of trivial things that once pointed out make you go, oh yeah, we acknowledge, accept, and quickly move something like the skill of flip-flop walking into the category of known knowns, even if we continue to do it without much thought going forward. Ideas of human behavior can be the trickiest of these unknown knowns in the sense that we often fight against acknowledging things that are obviously true. They're often 
hidden in plain sight, so to speak, and we fight against seeing them. I'm wondering, David, if you could start us out by explaining what mimetic theory is and whether you agree that it belongs in this category of unknown knowns for most people. Well, I think it it, it, it tends to, because human beings don't want to admit that they copy most of the things that they desire, like the haircuts that everybody gets. Everybody's doing the fade undercut right now or over oh, what's that thing called where everybody has their faded head and then they have long hair on top and you know they didn't do that in 2007 they didn't do that in 2012 but they all magically get the same haircut at the same time and each one of the people that does it if you ask them you're just doing this because everybody else is doing it they'll, they'll swear up and down no I'm not I, I truly really really think this haircut really expresses me and said, well, why didn't you have that in 2004? Why didn't you have that in 1998? Why did you have exactly the hairstyle that everybody had in 98 and exactly the hairstyle usually in 2002? Exactly the, the fashion of 2007? You didn't do that in 2020. If you wore what 2007, if you wore 2020 fashion in 2007, you'd be considered a fringe, uh, maybe a homeless person or something. You know. So the point is, is that... Uh, of course, so much of what we desire, we believe is from our own heart, but it's not. And that's kind of what mimetic theory is about from the work of Rene Girard is the idea that human beings uh, uh, have a romantic lie that they believe that the desires that they have come from their heart. And that, and if you really understand Rene Girard's work, it really destroys the fundamental core of liberalism and the idea of humanism. Because so much of what we are told in our society is you must follow what makes you happy. But you don't know what makes you happy. That's why you have to look at those around you to see what they're desiring. And you kind of unknowingly know to copy them, right? Even if you don't admit it in your own consciousness, you're still unconsciously driving your desires towards the things that they desire. You don't want the Lamborghini because you want it. You want it because somebody else that you saw in society has it as a social status symbol. That's a token of what they've arrived at in life. That is a kind of status that you want to have. And you don't want the house in a certain zip code necessarily because it's truly of your own heart's desire, but rather your heart feels that it's what your neighbor has that you could have that might be able to allow you to partake in the same feeling of satisfaction that your neighbor seems to have, at least according to Facebook photos. I see certainly that happening. And I, I, once you wrap your head around the, the deepness of the thought, it is absolutely what we're doing. And I have to own up to the, the ways in which I also do this, that I imitate other things, uh, other things that people do, and that my desires are absolutely influenced by the desires of others. Though, at some point here, I may push back on the idea that this, uh, there's that there's almost a determinism about this, and or that we're just like some kind of cosmic pinball bouncing around by forces that we don't have any control over. I think our ability to self-reflect tampers that to some extent. The first I want to get into, you mentioned that this was, uh, that mimetic theory cuts against liberalism. Is that a, an accurate um, way of stating what you, you said about it? In some ways, yes. I mean, in some ways it kind of explains how we got to liberalism, but it kind of challenges the notion of follow your own heart, do what, you know, do what makes you happy 
you know, your own self-determination. Uh, there's a part of that that can be compatible with mimetic theory, but it really, really attacks the core of the cultural assumptions that we've inherited in our time. It's an interesting uh, trying to think about the idea of liberalism. I think that is one aspect of it, though. I suppose I think of that more as the um, what is it? The kind of the eat, love, pray aspect of liberalism. The sort of you know dance to the beat of your own drummer aspect, as opposed to maybe more kind of traditional political liberalism or liberalism in the sense of a universal search for truth and you know an understanding of evidence. Well, traditional liberalism comes up with this social contract theory, right? Where where does that come from? That's a myth. That's what Rene Girard helps us see is that. There's no time in which we're all just kind of having conflict and we come together and sort out a contract together. That never happened in our history. That never happened in human history where we were all just, hey, let's sit together and have tea and work out a contract. No, uh, that's a lie. That's a myth that we've told ourselves to justify uh, the power the power structures that liberalism has, has, has really built up. So, of course, there are good things that come with liberalism, but I think it's starting to run its course. And listeners should note that I did a uh, a radio uh, episode with Michael Humer, and we discussed uh, in in to some detail that idea of the social contract as a kind of as a very poor analogy for a contract, in that it is something that you you did not agree to and would not agree to, and yet is thrust upon you as a something that you have signed nonetheless. Getting back, though, to the idea of uh, mimesis, can you talk a little bit about Girard himself and how he came up with that idea? Yeah, he was a most famously known as a professor at Stanford University. He's a person born in France, um, and he uh, taught in America. Most of his academic career was spent in America at various universities, including John Hopkins University, where he was teaching literature and uh he is a historian by training but he was assigned to teach literature and he he was tired of doing the thing that was considered in vogue at the time which was to deconstruct the text uh and he wanted to look for the similar patterns across all the different novels of western literature and so he started looking for the same he started seeing the same patterns emerge across all the great works whether he was reading Don Quixote or whether he was looking at the plays of Shakespeare, he saw that all the different dramas that were considered the finest pieces of Western literature all were unveiling a triangular dynamic of conflict, that human beings don't con have conflict because of differences. They have conflict because of similarities and sameness, and that human beings get into triangular relationships where they're in fighting over the same woman or person that they desire or the same um, uh, sensei. They want the same maestros. Uh, uh, there's two two uh, students are fighting over the teacher's approval or two people fighting over the uh, same lover. Those types of triangular patterns, he saw them in all the different great Western novels. And he saw that... Um, that this was revealing something about human nature that human beings don't want to admit uh, in a normal course of, of their everyday thought life. 
but that the reason why those great works of Western literature were so powerful and so transcendent and considered so penetrating is because they, their authors had stumbled onto an underlying mechanism that drove so much of human dynamics and relationships. And Rene Girard says that human beings don't desire uh, things objectively. They, they look to their neighbor. Like the Ten Commandments talks about, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's donkey, thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, or anything else that belongs to thy neighbor. The emphasis is on the neighbor. And that, that runaway covetousness can become a mimetic desire that's negative, but mimetic desire can also be positive when you're doing it in a way that is not creating conflict and rivalry. Like if you learn to play like Beethoven, you're imitating a, in a positive sense. He's an external mediator. That means he's outside of your ability to have rivalry with him because he's way beyond your uh, time frame in history. He's way beyond your skill set way beyond your age, whatever experience. And so you're imitating someone who's far beyond your ability to have conflict with. But if you're in conflict with somebody who is closer to home, uh, or if you're in, if you're imitating someone who's closer to home, who's closer to your sphere of influence or your social status, you're more likely to come into a negative rivalry where you're imitating aggression towards each other, imitating ugliness towards one another, imitating power plays towards one another or bad words or passive aggressiveness or whatever it is. And humans can imitate positively, but they can also imitate negatively. And it's much easier to imitate negatively. Um, it's harder to get out of a negative feedback loop of, of copying. So uh, if you, um, if I, if I reach out to shake your hand and you uh, snub me by pulling your hand back, then I'm going to send a signal to you through my verbal cues or nonverbal cues that I saw what you did. And I think you're very rude. And then you will see the gestures that I do with my face and say, well, see, that's why I didn't want to shake his hand to begin with. You see how rude he is. Hmm. And so we're all mimetically kind of drawn into this reciprocity that we really believe that we were not the first to start the conflict. We always believe we're in self-defense, but oftentimes it's very, hard to determine who really started these things. It's interesting you mentioned the the tenth commandment about not coveting your your neighbor's stuff. It's interesting to me and that would be the ten commandments are widely thought to have kind of lasted in our imagination this long because to some extent they are a template for a you know a society that works. The, what's interesting to me too about that is that the very first commandment is have no have no other gods besides me desire only me it's it's baked into not just the tenth amendment but also the first amendment I want to be a good that is non rivalrous to you I want to be your one and only interesting no yeah yeah and the first uh problem in the garden is, uh, of course, rivalry with uh, God, right? You know, God God did not set up these boundaries uh, for your own good, but rather because he wanted to, uh, you know, show that he is God and you're not, and you're not able to reach his standards by playing by his rules. So here's a shortcut that allows you to become a rival to God. And that's really what we see today. Uh, I've read an article recently called, called God's Little Rival. And that's what explains modernism today and humanism is that human beings are little rivals. They want, they want to supplant the created order 
and and to establish themselves as the creator as 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 god and that means that they have to try to invert all the things that we know to be right and wrong so they can recreate the universe in its own image where there is where man's ego and man's desires are not to be um you know hampered in any way i think that's what that's jeffrey epstein's worldview in in a nutshell you know that's the gods of our time Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of him as an example of that as you were talking. I was thinking more that since the beginning of the atomic age, we are essentially like gods in that we have the ability to literally destroy our world. And in some sense now with technologies like CRISPR and and so forth, we have the ability to, to either destroy it or radically remake it in whatever image we want to. Yeah, you talk about like the pig heart that they just transplanted into the man. The one one example of it that we can now swap out parts. I guess the the overall movement towards transhumanism is a movement to decide that human beings we're going to treat ourselves as a blank slate and we're going to remake ourselves as well as the everything else around us almost at a like a molecule by molecule level we will build it up like we were building up a game in Minecraft or something and that applies not just to the landscape but to the creatures that inhabit our universe right yep yep and they have that's what they were doing with the wuhan institute of virology where they were studying bat viruses and trying to play god and and uh you know thinking that they know better than than uh to know boundaries and respect for nature and they'll probably continue to do that i mean let's look at look at for example the invention of vegetable oils uh, these are a toxic seed oil sludge byproduct that was considered toxic for humans and animals consumption. And it was developed first as a cottonseed oil uh, after World War II, uh, excuse me, after the Civil War. And it was considered a garbage product for fraudsters to sell. Uh, and yet by the 1950s and 60s, there started to be a lot of uh, corporations who were trying to promote seed oils like canola, soybean oil, you know, uh, corn oil, all these different seed oils. Uh, they were trying to suggest that these things were more healthier. They were healthier than the traditional fats that humans had been eating, like butter and coconut oil and um, traditional oils like that, beef fat. Uh, what happened was they ended up creating a disaster. I mean, now we know the scientific literature shows that man-made seed oils, far from being a healthy alternative to ancestral fats that God created, these monstrosities have led to the rise of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, arthritis, Alzheimer's, autoimmune disorders, depression. Almost everything that we consider to be a disease of civilization has been laid at the feet through the scientific literature to seed oils consumption. And uh, it's created you know, millions of, of horrific slow deaths uh, and diabetes is rampant. Basically, seed oils took cancer. It was an indie band and made it a top a top five Billboard charting artist. Uh, it was an obscure disease before the seed oil revolution. So that's what humans do when they try to be arrogant and try to play God and create their own, uh, you know, oh, we're going to create a new order. We can't accept natural fats. We have to create our own fats that will be healthier. No, they won't. Actually, it'll cause death and destruction. I think that's a common pattern that we create something, we generate some new 
amazing technology and lean way into it and then the 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 horrors of it or the downsides the complications the trade-offs reveal themselves over time we'll have to take a break here when we get back i'm gonna talk about one of my own uh, desires that i fulfilled recently and try to analyze it through the uh, lens of mimetic theory you are listening to the matt asher radio show on keys talk fm Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with David Gornoski. He is the host of A Neighbor's Choice Radio Show, also here in Florida. And we're talking about mimetic theory, an idea popularized by Rene Girard. And as promised before the break, I'm going to talk through one of my recent purchases through the lens of this theory as best I can and see if I'm, I'm doing it right and maybe get some feedback here from uh, David about it, who's an expert on the subject. And this happens to be about the purchase of a boat. And as um, any new boat owner has to talk about it the way that anyone who's just started CrossFit or become recently a vegan has to talk about that. So I'm going to talk about that. I spent a long time looking for a boat and had my eye on one in particular that I was uh, considering. And at some point in the considering of it, I found out that this boat was once owned by or used by someone who is famous to go through the Northwest Passage. This is kind of a military-style boat, a cool, uh, a very cool vessel. And as my first major, uh, as my first really boat of any significant size, I was interested in getting something that would be kind of indestructible in case I banged it off a wall. So this is a, for those who know about these, a rib-style boat, which is a, a rigid inflatable boat. It has an aluminum bottom and then kind of a an inflatable pontoon of sorts in a V shape at the around the hull that you can you know you can bump into things. These are used often by the Coast Guard or things like that. And as I was going through the process of purchasing it, I did a lot of thinking once I found out that it was used um, by this person in this way for this kind of semi-known journey through the Northwest uh, Passage. Uh, I, I did a lot of thinking about, does this add to the value of the boat? And then it, that gets conflated with a couple different things. On the one hand, there is the, do I desire it more because it has this historical sort of uh, reference to it? Is it more valuable to me? But maybe even more importantly, because when you make a large decision about buying something, you're not, in some sense, really just buying it for you, you're buying it for others. Is this something, is this an attribute that other people will find desirable? And how should I put that calculation into the price that I'm willing to pay for it? In other words, on, on the one hand, my desires are my desires, they're what I want. Um, on the other hand, I need to be really clear about to what extent I need to conform, especially when it comes to a purchase like this, my own desires with the collective desires. 
and and maybe we'll get into this into a, at some point to what extent those desires would actually convert into someone pulling the plug and also purchasing this so does this good have rivals and to what extent is it rational for me to not just be buying this boat for myself but also to be actually keenly aware of the extent to which it is desirable to others sure you you have your basic needs which you need which are not mimetic. That's like food and shelter, um, basic, almost instinctual drives that we have. You don't need to look at somebody else to know that you need to eat. You just eat, right? It's an instinct. And you don't need to look at somebody else to know that if there's a high wind, you need to crawl underneath a safe place to avoid the winds and rain. Those are basic needs of survival. But after that, we have a lot of wants that we don't know we don't know where to anchor them and so uh because of that we turn to our neighbors to look at what they seem to be desiring and we for whatever reason copy certain people's desires so the house you're at if it was owned by Ernest Hemingway and you knew that would you pay a dollar more at least for it you yeah know? certain certainly absolutely even though right. I'm not necessarily a fan of his writing just because right. I would assume that other people would want it, and I need to factor that into my calculus. Right. You like radio, right? If mm-hmm. the house that you were going to buy in QS was the former uh, winter retreat for Paul Harvey, would you like? Would you pay a little bit more for it, maybe? So, so those—that's kind of an interesting one in the sense that one of the things you need to keep track of when you're trying to like value uh, something that is both something you're going to live in or use like a boat and also an investment because you know a home absolutely is that uh, even if it's a depreciating asset it's still an investment um, that you're going to both get use out of and you know hopefully get uh, some money back out of would would have to be to what extent it is anti-desired by other people right to what extent does that does this is this object coveted because of its history and to what extent is you know is whatever history it has a, a negative you know like if you're in a house that has and I'm not this is not to besmirch Paul Harvey who may have been a, a lovely person but like there are certainly some people who if they own the house it would be almost like a, if a murder had happened there right um, like Rush and, Limbaugh if Rush Limbaugh owned a house a lot of liberals would want to buy it right right Hi, it would make it highly controversial in in some ways right and would make it the the ob, an object that is not so much of desire but um but but of of, of anti desire i guess right. or repulsion which is right? all it's all mimetic though i mean if you if you go to a high school and it's very fashionable to be dressing in a country western attire then you're going to do that you go to another high school and they're very much against country western attire then you might hate country western attire to fit in with the new vibe of the high school you're at so yeah, you can repel from desires to fit in with the crowd that you want to be uh, perceived as a part of, right? So sometimes we we want to stand out by fitting in better than everybody else. Does that make sense? Abs- absolutely, right? There's an interesting interplay, which is why I think that to some extent we're able to recover um, the the ability to act in a way that is independent of these kind of mimetic forces or at least by acknowledging them, we're able to get out of ahead of them. I, do you know about um, Soros and his theory of reflexivity in, in markets? I heard a little bit about it, but go ahead. 
Yeah, so he, uh, this is George Soros, possible destroyer of uh, our world, but also for sure a very deep thinker about economics um, and very savvy when it comes to that. And he talked about the idea that when it comes to things like valuations or whatever, perceptions influence reality. And if you believe something to be true about, say, the value of a company, it can kind of bootstrap that reality and vice versa. If everybody loses confidence in a particular company, say, and everybody sells the shares of it, this might mean that the company no longer has access to capital. And because they have no more access to capital, they end up they end up dying as a company, even if they would have been perfectly fine if people had just held the line and continued to to hold that that company. So there's an interplay, and the reflexivity is the, the idea that you get these loops and these feedback things that happen. And once you understand that and see that, you can whether whether in, in my view whether this is involving finance or whether this is involving your own life and your own mimetic desires or in my case something like the boat purchase, I can look at that and go, okay, can I separate out the the extent to which I need to pay attention to these feedback loops and you know the these kind of loops of desire or the way in which I need to buy something that's also desirable to others from my own needs or desires to go out on the water and enjoy myself, um, which you know may be influenced by the culture or whatever. But if I can see that loop happening, if I can understand it, then I do have the ability to stand outside of it to some extent and act at the meta level. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. You're not going to fully escape it, but you can certainly be more uh, conscientious of how you, you know, you know, how, how you kind of surf on the different waves of your desire that crop up, that pop up in your heart. Uh, The point is, is that, um, you know, we, when someone says, okay, I want a boat, right? I mean, there's certain times and different eras in which you may not have the desire to invest in a boat. If you were in the 1830s, you may not desire a boat at that point of your life. You might desire something else. You might desire to invest in uh, corn or something. You know what I mean? So there's different things going on at different eras. They're gonna, they're, those are different cultural zeitgeists that are collective desires that are going to kind of pull you in to a certain pattern of behavior that, you know, you may not be aware of it. You know, you may think, no, I, I, I'm, I'm really into an obscure thing here, but it really truly is the spirit of the age that uh, is drawing you towards those choices. It doesn't make you bad. It doesn't make you, it's just who we are as human beings. We are wired. That's our greatest technique and our greatest ability in some senses to copy better than the other species on their planet. Uh, we are master imitators and we don't just imitate in a monkey see monkey do way, we, we, we imitate what we perceive other people are trying to acquire. And that may be a certain way of talking. If you notice that it's very fashionable now to say words like uh, self-care, that's a popular word now. You never heard that before. Um, toxic. Toxic is a really fashionable word right now. Gaslighting. That's another fashionable word, right? Uh, safe space, different words. Um, saying the word so when you start a sentence. Uh, so what I'd like to say is, you know, it's almost like a way of, 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 of not making your sentence as direct and stand and kind of, uh, you know, penetrate aggressive. It, it's a way to attenuate that. And I must admit that I do that myself. Uh, sometimes I start with, so, 
Yeah, and we pick that up because that's just what humans do. We're we're good at that, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but it is the source of a lot of our conflicts. And once you become aware of it, it is an opportunity to be kind of humble and um, self-aware so that you're not just floating around uh, thinking that you're an island unto yourself when you look like a fool uh, in the broader picture of the the world. You know, look at what's happened with this uh covid mania thing i mean it's a, a total nightmare so many people believe i have objectively studied scientific literature and that's why i'm giving a booster to my 6 month old baby for a disease i mean it's like this is this is insanity this is what we know mimetic desire leads to hysteria when people are not able to have the humi- the epistemological humility to to uh, be aware of kind of what you were saying of unknown knowns people think that they've got it all figured out and there is no unknowns uh, for them to be worried about in their own calculations, you know. And that's a that's a very arrogant, very classically human mistake that has led a lot of societies into the ash heap of history. There are there are both the the high stakes and the low stakes versions of this. Uh, thinking about uh, mimetic theory, I thought about the fact that uh, how many years ago was it? Maybe five or so. I gave in and got a fidget spinner, just like everybody else uh, on the planet, and played with it for a while and then put it away right at the height of the time that those were all the rage. I also had kids in my house at that time who were uh, definitely susceptible to that uh, that fad. And so, you know, they got them, I got them. And not a big deal, right? The household collectively spent $20, $30 on fidget spinners, played with them for a while, gave them away. It was a, a, a low state kind of imitation uh, on the on the other extreme we have well what you alluded to the ways in which during the the pandemic people have acted essentially like herd animals right they have they have imitated behaviors of others around them in an unthinking way and sometimes in an unthinking way that has been really absolutely catastrophic to overall human wellness from, you know, from masking to the idea that other people, just their mere existence poses a threat to you and you need to socially isolate. That's a kind of, it, it, there was a lot of discussion and I think rightfully so about the extent to which the contagion was the virus and to what extent the contagion was related to the behaviors that were a reaction to the the pandemic and the, the fear in the media and and so forth. It is, I think, worth infinitely more energy when it comes to something that is much more high stakes than, you know, than buying a fidget spinner. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And Rene Girard talks a lot about that in the book, like The Scapegoat. He wrote a book called The Scapegoat, which talks about how uh, in, in history, the line between plague of of actual disease versus plague of bad human behavior is very blurry. And, uh, and you see that the ancients in literature uh, made it very kind of obscure. You didn't know what was actually a literal disease plague versus what was a plague of bad behavior and distrust. And so you had uh, you had situations, all throughout history in which people bring out the worst of human behavior, especially around the fear of a disease or a pandemic, or if the medicine man doesn't make the rain stop or or doesn't make the rain come with his dance, his rain dance, then they could kill the rain dance maker. They could kill the medicine man who was supposed to be tasked with the sacred role 
of performing the ritual to bring rain to the crops. And if he fails to perform that ritual, he will be consumed as well. That's why people like Fauci have to always be careful that they don't get scapegoated because they're playing a high stakes game of being a high priest for the collective masses and their desires for safety and security. I think there's a lot more to say about the the aspects of, of scapegoating and, and mimetic theory. We'll have to get into that after the break. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with David Gornoski. He is the host of A Neighbor's Choice radio show, also down here in Florida, the original South Florida in the Tampa area, uh, not all the way down in the Keys. We're talking about Rene Girard and mimetic theory and the idea of the scapegoat, which is prominent in uh, Girard's uh, writings, and we were talking about COVID in particular, but the idea of the scapegoat is a is a very old one that goes back you know, way way back in time. It was part of ancient rituals. There's a, a book, The King Must Die, historical fiction book, in which every year a a new king comes along and has to kill the old one. And I'm going to read a a quote from that to you that I particularly like. This is the main character who, uh, this is a a fictionalization of of Theseus's life. And he comes into the scene where there is this king who's come to the end of his reign and is to be killed by Theseus. And Theseus says of him, he is the scapegoat. Looking at him, they see only the year's troubles, the crop that failed, the barren cows, the sickness. They want to kill their troubles with him and start again. Yeah, that's the uh, the idea of of the creation of a new cosmos, which Rene Girard, you know, he, he started off in Western literature and he stumbled into anthropology by looking at ancient mythical texts. And he found a similar pattern in the way mythology was written too. You know, he seemed, it seemed that, creation stories may not actually be talking about the little creation of the cosmos in a, in a kind of like scientific way, the way we think of the beginning of cosmology, but rather they were talking about the creation of the social order of the order as they knew it. And it was interesting that a lot of different creation myths talked about the beginning of, of the time being in chaos. There's a primordial chaos going on. And then a god strikes down another god, or a god hits another god, and out pops humans, or out pops this species, or that thing, or this thing, or heavens and earth, and so forth and so on. A kind of cartoonish violence comes through the chaos and establishes differentiation, order, right? Boundaries out of the chaos. And so Rene Girard's looking at that, and he's saying, why do we have this, this kind of hubristic thought that Oh, all of this is just make-believe playtime that humans were just busy coming up with, uh, you know, imaginative stories just for the heck of it. No, he said there must be a utility for this because we see this pattern in all the different mythologies across the world. And we see that these mythologies coincide 
with practices of ritual sacrifice. And so he's looking at this like a detective through history, trying to figure out, okay, what's really going on here? And he's, and he comes to the conclusion that these myths are actually cover up stories for a type of collective violence against a common enemy. Because when you have runaway mimetic desire in a negative sense, it's very hard to understand how humans still exist in the first place. Because, uh, you know, animals have a, def- uh, have a dominant submission mechanism in place that when the alpha ma- uh, male wolf defeats the contender, uh, the contender offers his neck and the wolf usually stops there. They don't go for the kill shot the kill bite they just go fall in line to the new dominance pecking order humans are not the same way if we can get a chance we're going to get revenge to the point of death or even genocide if possible so i kill your friend then you kill my uh family then whoever's left from my family escapes one day and gets an army together and kills your whole neighborhood and then who's ever left from that who remembers what happened maybe when they get a chance they kill my whole city and there you go you've got human history well, how are we still here, though? I mean, how do we not just wipe this vicious, violent species out of existence if we have such runaway, out-of-control, reciprocal aggression to the point of extermination? Rene Girard said there, there, there seems to be something in religion itself which actually helped birth the human species, to help birth our language, to help birth our ability to channel our, our, our aggressions in a healthy direction. In a healthy sense, he means a non species exterminating direction you know that's what we we see with patterns of ritual sacrifice they are actually primitive religious remembrances reenacting a primordial spontaneous murder that we stumbled onto as a way of deferring our violence against one another into a safe common enemy so a scapegoat is someone who's a little bit different than others for whatever arbitrary reason, maybe they're too tall, maybe they're too short, maybe they're too pretty, maybe they've got deformities, maybe they've got a hunchback. That's why you notice that the gods of mythology have certain deformities. Some of them walk with a limp. Some of them uh, are Medusa, they're too ugly. Some of them have a, a crooked nose or a witch or something. There's something that stands out. Cyclops has one eye. Something stands out in an arbitrary way that makes them an easy target for scapegoating. Gods are also going to be people who don't have a lot of people Uh, or candidates for sacrifice are going to be people who do not have a lot of people who are going to enact revenge against them. It's going to be someone who maybe they they could have been rich, but they've got a lot of enemies. Uh, They could have been in power, but they've lost their uh, desirability by the masses, or it could be a peasant or someone who is disabled, who doesn't have a lot of family members or friends who are going to come to their aid to defend them. If you target them for sacrifice. So a scapegoat usually is going to be someone who's inside, but also outside of the community kind of the in-betweener. And uh, because if they're totally outside, then they're not going to be a good, sufficient blame, right? Because you can't, if someone just shows up, it's a little bit harder to blame them for the problems uh, that have been going on for some time, rather than someone who's a part of the community to some extent, but they can't be too much of an insider where they've got all their friends ready to say, hey, don't blame them. They're innocent, right? So a scapegoat's got to have kind of insider and outsider dynamics at play. And they, and they need to be arbitrarily different, as I mentioned, so that in a sea of sameness, if everybody's fighting everybody because resources are scarce or um, there's an opportunity where people are worried about a famine or a disease or whatever, uh, that's going to put people in a state of aggression. They're going to have bad blood spreading around the community 
And so it's going to be much easier to say, I think you caused the problem. You probably put a spell on us. Maybe you're a witch or you're deformed. Maybe you're hated by the gods and you've broken some taboo that has cursed our community. We have to defeat you. We have to throw you off the cliff. Uh, in many cases, it would be ritual cannibalism in the earliest stages of, of primitive religion. All over the world, we see this, right? And so that scapegoating event of devouring or defeating or, de or vanquishing a common threat creates a catharsis, creates relief, creates transcendent belonging amongst people who at the, at the time were at war with one another. That's why, you know, we see vestiges of this all the time. Like you look at the leftist coalition, it's a bunch of people that hate each other, but they unite around a common enemy like Trump or something or the deplorables. And the same thing goes for the right. You got people on the right who are deeply Christian or some people who are very not Christian or some people who are warmongers want to bomb everybody. Other people are really big about abortion, whatever, but they don't really have much in common, but they unite around their common enemy. And that's kind of what creates the culture of, of, of what binds them together is who they exclude mutually. And, and who they, they want to scapegoat. And then we, though, this, of course, this is both a, a circuit breaker, I suppose, the scapegoat in that you personify everything that went wrong and drive that out and then kind of cleanse things. But it is also a, a cycle that you can get into, a cycle of, of violence of one group scapegoating another and then back and forth. And then in that context, you have religion or, you know, um, Christianity coming along and maybe you have an attempt to kind of break the cycle with a different mythology. Well, it's a revelation of what mythology is. The story of Jesus is basically deconstructing step-by-step step the scapegoating process. It's almost as if someone comes in and has the awareness to know what humans have been doing at the heart of their religions and performs the role of the scapegoat God-King so that the whole world history could study that and start to realize, wait, this is what we've been doing all along. It's ugly. It's stupid. It's useless. We knew not what we did when we killed Jesus, and so therefore gods don't demand sacrifice like we thought. Now we've got to figure out how to get along without sacrifice binding us together. So we didn't have dueling scapegoats like you mentioned. We didn't have that back in the day. It was a dominant cultural system, and there weren't competing factions scapegoating one another. Now we do because Jesus destroyed the scapegoating unanimity, so now we don't have unanimous uh, cultural hegemony that says there's one villain group and then everybody else unites around them. Now we have different schisms constantly forming. And now because of Jesus upending the expectations of, of, of whether sacrifice is good or not. Uh, now people can get social status by pretending to be the most victimized, the most martyred, the most, uh, the most like the Lamb of God. Now we have people who are coveting the, the martyr's perch of Jesus on the cross in order to gain social status. So now in our current landscape today, in the political correctness and wokeness that we're in, it's, it's a type of attempt to revivify scapegoating as a ritual to bind us together, but to do so in the form and fashion of Christianity, to pretend to be the most Christian persecuted, you know, to be the most uh, innocent victim. Right, so the, the the victim, it's a 
it's kind of an upholding or, or raising up to the nth degree of the idea that the the victim is sacred and that you are the victim, though, because people don't like to actually be victims. Usually it's the upholding of a, a victimhood that comes in the form of being the victim of, say, a, a microaggression, which is uh, certainly a much nicer way to be uh, a victim than to be crucified. Right. It's like postcard victimism. Yeah. They want to have the postcard of being crucified without the reality or like those pictures where you put your face in the hole, you know, to get your photo at the, at the tourist trap. You probably have those in Key West, right? The mm -hmm. little painting yeah. that you put your head in. That's what, that's what uh, wokeism today. It's a cross, a person on a cross and you put your face in there to say, look, I've been crucified by you because I'm a black person or I'm a, a native American or I'm a Hispanic or I'm a white male or whatever it is that your victim group is that you think, justifies you to be considered to be the most crucified in the community. That's what gives you social power today. And that's why our society is falling apart. And Jesus predicted this. He said that I've come to bring peace, but not the peace of the world. I've come to uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, to cut through the false peace of scapegoating and open up a new dynamic of being a human. Uh, and that's what we're, we're dealing with today. We're enthralled by that cultural inheritance that, ultimately is creating a destabilizing effect. We're just about out of time here. David, can you tell the listeners where can they hear your show, both the, the radio version and the podcast version? Sure. Our website is aneighborschoice.com, and uh, you can find us on Rumble, on BitChute. If you search for A, the letter A, Neighbors Choice, uh, you can subscribe there. Or you can go find us on any podcast by searching for David Gronoski, where you can hear our show. Now, if you're in the Tampa Bay area, you can listen to WHBO News Talk Tampa Bay. That's 1040 AM and 94.5 FM. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And I did not get that boat. I got a different one. Maybe I'll tell that story some other time. 